Good afternoon, it's just after one o'clock. Welcome to a UK column news. Today is Wednesday, the 17th of February 2021, I think. It is. We got there. That's very good. And uh, we're delighted to be joined today by Alex Thompson, uh, bringing us Eastern approaches from the Netherlands and also Vanessa Beely, who will be reporting from Syria, where there's a little bit of snow, I believe. Oh no, the snow's all gone, but we'll come on to that a little later. Now, uh, if you remember a week or so ago, a little bit more than that, uh, the NHS whistleblower that gave Brian uh, a little bit of commentary uh, had this to say that the Pfizer vaccine causes the immune system to collapse for about a week. Um, well, where does that take us? Because on, last, uh, on the last programme, we were talking about full fact uh, and we were talking about the fact that they were uh, denying that uh, the vaccine was causing any uh, deaths in care homes. Uh, so let's have a look at the current situation with excess mortality from the Office for National Statistics. These numbers published yesterday. Um, and there's a number of things I want to highlight here. First of all, um, we see the peak from the beginning of uh, from March, April, May last year. But for most of the year, Brian, um, the hospitals were doing very, very well, significantly below uh, the five-year average. So excess mortality was in negative numbers, quite significantly in negative numbers. We'll explain why that's important a little bit later, but you can see that beginning in, a, in about October or so, uh, they started to, to, as similar to every winter flu season, started to get some excess mortality, uh, but really only uh, after the vaccine started to be deployed, did it ramp up significantly. Same in care homes, and we're seeing uh, excess mortality in care homes, as you can see on screen there at the moment. Now, the question is, uh, did the government understand uh, before they started rolling this vaccine out, did they understand whether or what effect it would have on elderly people, on people in care homes? Uh, because our whistleblower says it was clear from the scientific literature that the Pfizer vaccine in particular completely uh, pulled uh, immune systems down for at least a week to almost nothing. Yeah. Um, well, it turns out the government did know, because uh, thank you to our viewer who's, who reminded me of this, uh, because this is a report from the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. Uh, this is advice on priority groups for COVID-19 vaccinations published on the 30th of December 2020. Uh, so let's just have a look at the key phrase out of this. It says many individuals who are clinically extremely vulnerable will have some degree of immunosuppression or be immunocompromised and may not respond well to the vaccine. Now, why are they using language like may not? Well, mainly because they didn't have a clue. There was no uh, data available from the vaccine manufacturers. Uh, this was uh, a judgment, okay, a qualified judgment, uh, but they absolutely acknowledged in this report that uh, people may not respond well to the vaccine in the case where they're already uh, ex uh, exhibiting some degree of Im immunosuppression or immunocompromisation, uh, if there's such a word. So um, it's pretty clear, Brian, that to me anyway, that the government has some questions to answer over this um, because they knew uh, ahead of the main rollout of the vaccine to the care homes uh, that this was likely uh, to result in people, as they say, not responding well. Yeah, the start point for me is, of course, you're dealing about people, they say, are extremely vulnerable, extremely vulnerable. So therefore, you immediately need a protective wall of care. That's the due diligence which the government should have carried out in order to protect these extremely vulnerable people. But they didn't carry out any due diligence. They simply poured in the vaccines 
after incomplete trials or greatly reduced trials. So the government hasn't suddenly become incompetent. The government has been, we'll say, running the country for a significant period of time. So this has got to be done with calculation and malice. They knew what they were doing in pushing these vaccines in amongst extremely vulnerable people. The result was they were going to make them ill and many were going to die, which they have. Okay, so let's come back to the ONS excess mortality statistics. And this time, let's compare what was happening in hospitals since March last year with what's been ho happening in homes. Now, these aren't care homes. This is our homes, your homes, Brian's and my homes. Um, and what we can see is uh, that excess mortality fell below the five-year average um, in hospitals in the summer period from basically June until October. Um, and this was similar. We saw similar uh, in care homes, uh, similar in other settings. But in people's homes, the excess mortality never disappeared. Yeah. Uh, with the exception of the bank holiday in uh, in the summer. So why? What is the reason for this? Uh, the reason, I believe, is that these are excess deaths caused by lockdown. Uh, this is because uh, the NHS was redeployed, uh, that anybody that couldn't demonstrate that they had some kind of coronavirus-related illness hasn't been getting treated. Um, and uh, uh, that goes from everybody trying to get a GP's appointment uh, right up to uh, anybody needing cancer treatment and so on. Uh, but uh, the other point here, Brian, is the other question I have is how many of these excess uh, deaths um, are suicide related? Well, of course, we don't know. And the ONS says they can't give us suicide data because until there's actually an inquest, um, they don't know whether somebody was a suicide or not. An inquest can take 18 months. Yeah. Um, so we, it may, we may never find out exactly what the uh, impact on suicide of uh, lockdown has been uh, but i find that graph uh, extremely telling it's it's very telling uh, but we've got the government enacting its policy and as our care home whistleblower said uh, what concerned them most was that people operating in in the care system need to be close to their patients need to get to know them need to understand what's wrong with them and what they what the manager of the care home described was that they'd simply the care staff had simply become agents of government policy. So the government policy has come in, people are dying, but is there a government investigation into these tens of thousands of excess deaths? No, we simply start to manipulate the data. I've got to add this one, Mike. Um, I was listening to uh, the BBC uh, Radio 4 News uh, yesterday, and uh, that's to keep up with what the BBC is saying. Mm. And we had talk about COVID and COVID and COVID vaccinations, nothing about excess deaths. But they then reported that 30 people had died in a tragic bus accident in India. And I thought, what an insult to people in UK, tens of thousands of people dying, particularly vulnerable people. BBC doesn't report it. 30 people die in India. And that is a major slot on Radio 4. Um, let's... Uh introduce everybody to Regional Command Headquarters Southwest. Brian, I wasn't really aware of this before. Where is it? Uh, well, um, 
Where is it? That's a very good well, question. It, well, it's where well, is it? Because I believe it's in Wiltshire. I believe it's in Wiltshire. Part of it seems to be in Wiltshire, but it's very, very difficult to find out what the British Army is doing at the moment. And what I just wanted to interject is I, I expect people are curious as to how we've suddenly hopped from COVID to the British Army. Well, stay with us because you're about to find out. But no, we've got these glossy new regional commands. That's a very European style language. And uh, as we dig into this, we can ask ourselves, what is going on here? Now, this is part of what they say, UK Operations and Resilience, the coordinating body for the army support to civil authorities in the event of a crisis or large scale event that requires military support. The type of support provided is dependent on the situation, but can range from delivering niche capabilities, which would otherwise be unavailable to civil authorities, or augmenting capability through provision of additional manpower or assets. That's all the new speak. What are they really talking about? Well, they say at the bottom that previously, of course, the military have come in when there's been some form of local disaster flooding uh, is mentioned here. The Olympic Games, we had to bring in the military in 2012. And interestingly, it also says foot and mouth. So I wonder whether our viewers are now getting a, a clue as to why we may be pointing a finger at the military. Um, well, again, thank you to the viewer that sent me this this morning. Uh, this is the reason we're covering this. It's a presentation uh, by Joint Military Command Southwest, Resilience Cell J2. It's called Vaccination Hesitancy and Assessed Impact on Immunization Uptake. And I was very much fascinated uh, that uh, that the military would be publishing a document like this. Uh, Alex, did you want to say something on this? Yes. J2 is the army acronym for the intelligence unit of an organization. Uh, that is absolutely correct. And we will come on to that in one second. So uh, thank you for that. So putting this back up on screen, uh, why is the army and why are army intelligence involved in worrying about vaccine hesitancy? Well, let's just run through a few of the graphics here. Um, they talk about background. They talk about sections of the population less likely to accept the vaccine. Uh, they're talking about cultural aversions, demography, uh, BAME community, uh, interpretation of science. They're talking about exacerbation, er, exacerbating factors, statistics, assessments. And at the end, they've got references. And there's a caveat here, which I thought was quite interesting. It says this product, uh, because the document apparently is a product, this product has been developed to assist defense, understanding and inform military planning in the Southwest. It does not necessarily uh, reflect the findings and understanding of our civilian partners. What do you think of that? Well, I, I found that very, very interesting because on one hand, we have just shown you that the army says, well, we work with civilian partners to assist if there's some sort of crisis. Now we're looking at a crisis, apparently, uh, the so-called COVID crisis, and, and we've got an army document saying, well, we don't even need our civilian uh, partners. I find this extremely disturbing, this document, because we're looking at the organisation which should be protecting the British public, doing something completely different. And as we're going to see, it gets worse. Um, so they give a bit of background and vac uh, vaccine hesitancy. They give a timeline and so on. What's next? Uh, cultural aversions. They're talking about religion. Uh, they're talking about vegan, vegetarian people being averse. Uh, upbringing and migration may have an impact, language perhaps. Uh, they talk about uh, demography and uh, whether you are uh, at greatest risk are the most enthusiastic about receiving the vaccination with almost nine out of 10 older people willing to have it. 
some young people have the perception they're less likely to get severe or fatal symptoms and therefore they're not at risk. And just draw people's attention to the bottom left-hand corner where it says gender. Women surveyed were more likely than men to believe the vaccine has not been tested thoroughly. Uh, some breastfeeding or pregnant women have concerns following disinformation articles stating that the vaccine was untested on this demographic. The reality is more and more evidence is coming to the fore suggesting that vaccines are very dangerous to pregnant women. So what is the army doing here? Uh, is this really the army or have we got some other organisation at work, Mike? That's well, the question. Okay, let's move on. Uh, they talk about some science here, allegedly. Uh, I'm not going to dwell on these too much. Uh, more science available. Uh, if you, I mean, the, the, the uh, document will be made available on the UK Column website later on. Uh, and uh, well, vaccine hesitancy, anti-vax groups. Uh, now, this is for the Southwest, so I'm very disappointed the UK column isn't on this list. But anyway, we do. I think that's highly significant, Mike, actually. We're going to be able to talk to our viewers about uh, censorship creeping in on the column, but not today. Yes, uh, but they do mention Stand Up. They mention Save Our Rights. These are the two main groups that are organising protests. And they mention uh, the light newspaper, which you have a copy of there, Brian. I do, and I'm going to hold it on the screen. Many, many people are, are echoing back what a excellent newspaper this is how good the articles are detailed based on factual documents and evidence and that is obviously ruffling some feathers because it appears on this very very strange army document uh, and uh, where do we go then we get on to some assessment acts uh, about access to information lockdown fatigue uh, the effects of social media uh, the effects of public influence television updates and so on uh, and they look at the uh, various groups or the various areas within the southwest that may be uh, hesitant areas, including Bristol, Gloucester, Swindon, uh, and so on. Uh, and then what does that take us next? Their assessment, they produce a little wiring diagram uh, talking about behaviours, backgrounds, lack of understanding, ethnic background, biological events, uh, that's pregnancy and breastfeeding or contracting COVID-19 and so on. So uh, Patrick, uh, sorry, uh, Alex was absolutely correct. Uh, it is mainly intelligence led. So the three uh, key people that are pushing this forward, we've got Lieutenant Colonel Ash Ashbridge, MBE. Uh, we've got Lieutenant Spring and we've got uh, Corporal uh, Ray Kemp. So uh, let's have a look at uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ashbridge first. Here he is. Uh, and there he is out at the sign for uh, HQ Southwest. And this is uh, Safa uh, tweet saying one of our forces heroes in reserves day this uh, armed forces week is lieutenant colonel ash ashbridge mba a member of the british army reserves and safa hampshire volunteer mobilized to lead the planning team for our joint military command southwest and the other person or the second person on that list uh, was isaac spring uh, and uh, well he's a crown servant so we don't know exactly what and his we've role got is. to say wish we think we we are sure that this is the man i think we oh we no need, this is this, this is the man, this is, the okay, man yes. uh, this is this is the man so he's a crown servant previously a parliamentary researcher and a parliamentary assistant uh, and uh, if we just look at his uh, background uh, school of oriental and african studies university of london where he did a ba he also went to the university of st andrews and did an advanced certificate on terrorism studies. Um, so Alex, uh, um, I'm not sure what you think of that and, and of these people, but they are clearly uh, intelligence related. 
St Andrews that he went to for a postgrad, Mike, after SOAS, makes a particular point of being not just Scotland, but the entire United Kingdom's academic centre of excellence for training spooks mid-career and attracting researchers who know about the history of the British intelligence services. I see that while he was doing his bachelor's degree at SOAS, he learnt Zulu. Now, you can find innocent explanations for that, and people do study a wealth of African and Asian languages at SOAS, which is the part of the University of London that's world-leading in teaching those languages. Uh, but the British Army in particular has a long history of, uh, shall we say, pioneering things among the Zulus, going back to the Baden-Powell era, the, the 1890s, uh, particularly mind control elements, as, as well brought out, I think, by the LaRouche organization in the 1970s. Um, okay, so, uh... So that's where we are with that. Um, I can't remember the next question I was going to ask, so we'll, we'll just we'll just move quickly on. Well, can we can we just ask Alex? Um, this is deeply concerning that we have the British Army. We we watched seventy seven brigades set up and the Signals Intelligence um, group as well, and now we've got another mysterious group of people analyzing everything they want to know whether we are black or white or male or female or some other orientation this this is the uk population under the microscope of a paramilitary organization um, the next step is we're we're into stasi i i can't put this more strongly this is very very serious what we're showing today well, I think, Brian, along this particular tangent, the next step is Operation Banner repatriated. Because, uh, of course, the army wrongly talk about the mainland as though Northern Ireland were not part of the United Kingdom. And they talk about operations in Ireland. But this is very reminiscent of army intelligence wash-ups. Of course, they had disgraceful situations, the force, the force research unit, which did this kind of work among the Republican and nationalist population in Northern Ireland and adjoining border counties of the Republic, had to change its name a couple of times. Uh, you keep bumping into ex-FRU men in, uh, in other parts of British intelligence to this day, you know, superficially civilianized. And, uh, you know, the long-standing commitment Her Majesty's government made, the Americans would call it a posse comitatis rule, uh, we would call it a Bill of Rights requirement, uh, that troops are not used uh, in, the, in the, uh, the, the, the domestic setting. Uh, that appears to be only applicable now to, shall we say, policing and civilian on the streets uh, being in the lead. But there seems to be a loophole here for the army intelligence people, these J2 cells, to take the lead in formulating and running with information and hypotheses, as long as it doesn't result in a street, an on-street presence. Um, well, Alex, that, that's one area. Let's go to something simple that you go into a vaccination centre and the person who's going to vaccinate you is army, army medical team. And while they're vaccinating you, they're busy chatting you up for information about, you know, whether you were keen on the vaccine and your personal data is then going not into the NHS, which is bad enough with Google and, and also elements of GCHQ in the NHS, but your data could be going straight into intelligence cells of the British Army. This, this is astonishing. If people are watching us for overseas, um, the change in UK in a, in a matter of, well, we could probably talk about sort of three or four years in this aspect is, is phenomenal. 
you hit the nail on the head there, Brian. I remember speaking to a colleague covering Northern Ireland, and he was Army. He was from actually a J2 in Northwood. And I was chatting to him about overseas operations, and he said, of course, we have two volumes that thick, gesticulating with his whole hand open, on Gerry Adams. But the government won't run with it because he's, he supposedly has human rights and because they want him on side politically. But that was a good example of it, uh, based in their Sangers in Northern Ireland and in other settings, uh, posing as civilians, the army were able to, ca to collect data before and after the 1998 Human Rights Act that the civilian intelligence agencies, much less police and local councils, are not lawfully permitted to collate or keep or process. So that, I think, is one reason why the army's in the lead. They are allowed, they're exempt from all the uh, FOI requirements and some of the human rights requirements from Britain and European level. They're allowed to amass data because they can see their role is to, uh, to get information awareness on the theatre they're operating in. So they're permitted to have all these scurrilous and gossipy details about people. Uh, let's, uh, let me bring Vanessa onto the programme. Uh, did you have some thoughts on this? Uh, you're muted. Um, just to come back to Brian's comment there about um, Stasi, this was exactly the terminology that sprang to mind when I was um, taking a look at Mariana Spring, the BBC journalist who produced the BBC Panorama investigation into the anti-vaxxers. Um, now, this is a journalist who, according to testimony from people on Facebook, was infiltrating Facebook groups to ascertain members of the groups and their opinions. Um, then, if you look at the article that she wrote about the actual making of the programme, and at the end, in the final paragraph, it's very clear um, that effectively, yet again, the BBC is running what is an intelligence operation to ascertain those that are against the vaccine, to, if you like, corral them, um, and to have them on file for potential future penalties or, or punishment of some sort. Yeah. Okay. Well, well we, we're going to be seeing more of that in due course, not today, but inevitably in due Yes. in future news programmes. Yes. Now, the issue of uh, no vax or no jab, no job has been uh, gaining traction because the Telegraph has been largely pushing it. Uh, but we see more and more articles on this. So this is uh, from a law firm, uh, Fabrice and Farrell. Uh, Vaccinations in the workplace, no jab, no job, question mark. Uh, broadly speaking, it is possible for an employer to make a re this requirement, uh, is what she's saying. An employer has a duty of care to its employees which includes managing any risk of infection uh, in the workplace. But of course, the employer has a duty of care to all its employees, not just uh, those that are vaccinated, but also those that don't want to be vaccinated. Uh, so they have a duty of care either way. So I'm not quite sure where she's standing uh, on this one. Uh, we've seen this in action during the lockdown, she said, when many employers uh, put policies in place saying that their employees must work from home, limiting the amount of workers allowed uh, in the workplace at one time. This can be extended to ensuring that its employees are vaccinated in order to protect others. There's a key difference between being asked to work from home um, and, uh, uh, and uh, the other example she gave there and having uh, a vaccination because there's no uh, invasion of your personal space and, yeah. and, and your body. Uh, so there's a key legal difference there as well. But of course, as I say, the Telegraph has been pushing this extremely hard. Uh, they are pushing the idea that uh, uh, health and safety legislation could be used to justify this. But as we have highlighted a number of times over the last few weeks, uh, this is not uh, a, a clear situation. Uh, other people saying, giving legal advice, saying no, 
Uh, it is not possible to force people uh, to be vaccinated and to uh, use that as a condition of employment uh, because there are a number of uh, reasons that uh, that would go against the employer. Now, what it seems to me, Brian, is that there is a lot of effort here by the legal profession to create money because this is going to be a, litig a litigation uh, nightmare for many, many people. Uh, but the lawyers are just going to be laughing all the way well, to the that, bank with it. Mike, that's always the case. It was the case when gender came into um, employment and, and disability came into employment. The lawyers rubbed their hands because they were going to make huge amounts of money. Mm. Um, this is no different. Well, I just want to add on top of the vaccine that, of course, some uh, a group who are warning us that they're under huge pressure to be vaccinated are people wor working, sorry, working in care homes. And uh, uh, thank you to the viewer who pointed us at this little poignant video clip where um, a worker in a care home is showing us a so-called visit visiting pod. Uh, have a careful listen to what this man says and what he describes in this short video clip. You all know I do work in a care home. Now, I've spoken before about these visiting pods, these visiting pods that they get in your family to visit the residents and I'm just gonna show you what a visiting pod looks like and how inhumane it is, okay? I will be posting this video up to Instagram at some point because I am at the end of my tether now. I will be leaving this job at some point because I literally, my heart and soul can't take it. I can't watch this unfold around me anymore. So this is the visiting pod, okay? You come in through the door, that's the door. Looks like a cell door, right? So this is 10 foot by 10 foot. Right, this is 10 foot by 10 foot, probably 11 at the max, yeah? Right, it's split in the middle. Split in the middle. Look. Yeah, got to see your family through a front screen, mate. Yeah, and you've got to talk to them like this. You've got to talk to them like that. That's how you talk to someone on the other side. This is sick. This is sick. It's been a stressful couple of months, but honestly, I can't. This just doesn't sit right with me, mate. This doesn't sit right in my gut. Look at it. Look at it. It's like a visiting room in a prison. Look, look. This is not okay. This is not okay. For anyone who thinks this is okay, it's not okay. This is wrong. This is inhumane. It's wrong. So listen, I'm going to cut this video off. Right, this is what a visiting pod is. Okay. This is wrong. This is inhumane. And I'm not going to stand for this. I can't watch this anymore. I won't be at this job much longer. Well, extremely interesting clip. Now, we, we do not know this gentleman. We do not know if he is actually working in, the, uh, in a care home. What we do know is the pod he is describing is like many other pods which are being described to us from other care home facilities. And the terminology he's using is correct. This is the same system used inside prisons uh, where you can't get near prisoners. Um, you can see these in the American movie. So we're now treating vulnerable elderly people like prisoners. And aside from the emotional effect on those um, residents in the care homes and their families, we are seeing in that video clip 
the psychological effect on that man who's saying, I can't take this anymore because it's what he's really saying is it's against his morality. Alex, just a couple of uh, seconds response. I found that an extremely poignant little video. Well, Brian, on the premise that it's best to stick to what you know best, I would say that as a, an interpreter who does a lot of simultaneous meetings, uh, my staff union would be up in arms about putting healthy mid-career adults in that setting for more than half an hour at a time, uh, and particularly trying to speak and hear. The audio quality would do in the hearing of a really practiced interpreter, let alone an elderly hard of hearing person. So the psychological stress is too much, I think, even for healthy adults with special training. Yeah, and I'll just add that somebody in our chat box has said that is a pod. I visited, uh, I think it's my mother in one. So we've got live confirmation that this is what's happening in care homes as a result, principally of the government policy, not the care home policy. Um, OK, Alex, let's uh, move on to Germany. Uh, and uh, well, what's uh, what's GMX saying? GMX is an aggregator of German news. And before you put that one on screen, I've got an even better article, thanks to Magniflex, one of our new German viewers in the chat, from the FAZ, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, Germany's premier newspaper, which is reporting more detail uh, on this. Uh, the headline there is Hälfte der Geimpften meldet sich krank, which is the that half of those inoculated with the AstraZeneca virus uh, in one clinic in the northern state of Lower Saxony have reported that they have uh, health problems having been vaccinated. Uh, this isn't just speculation. This is coming from the Lower Saxony State Health Ministry's uh, Secretary of State, Heiger Schultz of the Social Democrats, so he's not even a, only right-wing politicians anymore saying this. Uh, he has confirmed to FAZ, the leading German paper, that half of around half of those inoculated at one clinic have gone uh, down sick, and, uh, and in another it's around a third, and this is now being tested at the Paul Ehrlich Institute. But if you want uh, German speakers, if you go back to that slide, we'll put it on screen just for one second. Uh, people can look for this on GMX under the Corona Meldungen from 16th of February, because there's going to be, I think, a rolling update there. As usual, there's too much text today, so people can just pause and find what they want to see. Um, not entirely or not directly related to the AstraZeneca uh, problems and let's bear in mind that just like the army's uh, J2 cell reported in a slide you put up there Mike um, many EU member states not the EU as that document wrongly said but many EU member states near Britain have stopped over 65s or even uh, younger people from receiving AstraZeneca even though that's said to be the best of the vaccines on offer because it hasn't been tested apparently on that elderly age group well here is uh, Canada's global research a very highly recommended new uh, source in the alternative scene uh, reporting that the Bundestag the federal parliament of Germany has ratified Gavi's digital agenda ID 2020 and if you pe people often Often, uh, make uh, too little use, as you say, Mike, of UK Column's search facility. If you go to ukcolumn.org, uh, hit the magnifying glass and search for the acronym GAVI, G-A-V-I, you will see what this is all about. But the idea of global digital identity, or ID2020, has been something we've been alleged, we've been told is conspiracy theories for a while, but it does seem to be increasingly uh, narrowly partnered with the uh, agenda, shall we say, of, uh, of, invest of vaccine rollouts. Um, let me just uh, ask Vanessa, was that was that your article uh, was one of the ones highlighting this? You're muted again. Sorry. 
Um, yeah, it was the two articles on the um, connections uh, with Big Pharma and the government response to COVID-19 that I wrote last year. They're, they're, it outlines all the connections to Gavi and ID2020. Okay, good. So ha have a look for Vanessa's articles on the UK Column website. And uh, well, that takes us to uh, RTV, Alex. This is the regional RTV um, outlet for Drenthe in the northeast of the Netherlands, one of the most sparsely populated Dutch provinces. And up there, there's a, a doctor's surgery, which as reported here, is trialing the use of a corticosteroid, dexamethasone, to prevent uh, COVID patients who have recovered from the, uh, the first problems they had from slipping down into low oxygen saturation and the need for respiratory support of any kind. So an, a promising thing that uh, a medical committee committee has not in this case blocked their uh, findings but has given them a green light to upscale a trial so it may be that even at Dutch national level before long this will be a protocol available to GPs without vaccination or I should hasten to add as I'm not specialist here uh, as an additional weapon in the arsenal against Covid. Um, okay now, and, uh, yes go ahead. Yes well the main thing from the Netherlands right now uh, is that we don't know whether or for how long we will be in this 9pm curfew situation. Uh, I'm using two articles from dutchnews.nl so that people can read it in English what's been going on. Uh, the first one reports, uh, this is overnight news, we had a bit of a shock here, that the curfew will remain in place until Friday's appeal uh, because the relevant court in The Hague actually found against the Dutch government yesterday, uh, the case being brought by a citizen's interest group. Um, but. We're not done yet because directly that ruling had been uh, issued. The government appealed it, which does seem to be the way on the continent. And so we're going to be finding out on Friday what the situation is. But sadly, uh, just as Rainer Fulmichoften says in Germany and to his worldwide audience, in the continental or Napoleonic scheme, judges don't actually have to test the evidence of what's been put to them. So in the ruling uh, that's come out of that piece that's just been reported, which I've looked at, uh, the judge is saying, well, you see, uh, the government says it needs to put people under frighteners by keeping them in curfew. And I accept that at face value. They, what they say they want to prevent a yo-yo effect in infection rates. I accept that and it outweighs the complainants' uh, temporary inconvenience. There's a few actual real people being inconvenienced for a while. That must be outweighed by the government of the state and its claims of doing things for the greater good. And uh, there's clearly some sympathy even in the larger cities among the policemen uh, for this because Dutch News also reports that some police have congratulated the gentleman on screen who is a, a dance teacher I believe and who is, uh, has a history of battling the government for his liberties uh, and the, uh, the, the, the Virus Truth uh, Foundation is the name of his operation that brought the case. Uh, some police congratulated him and what do we see there that police are told no no the job of police is to enforce the law therefore you are not to congratulate anyone on a court ruling going one way or the other. An indication of the mindlessness which is required of police in, shall we say, the new totalitarian model that's coming on around mm. the world. Somewhat uh, further afield, go on. Yeah, so curfew in Brussels as well, in Belgium as well. Yes, yeah, so we've got a mixed bag here because on the left in a French speaking article, uh, a, a case that was brought against a man who was uh, visited at a Brussels slaughterhouse in Anderlecht, not wearing a mask and was fined or prosecuted for it. And his defence successfully at a court of first instance, known as a police course in Belgium, uh, was that this was not uh, a, a properly balanced or proportional requirement. And that court did at least at first instance say he's quite right. This is a non-constitutional law or unconstitutional requirement, but we on the, on the right of that slide that the Brussels Times in English is reporting that the curfew, similar to the Dutch one here, but starting earlier every evening, 
is constitutional. And I've blown up a little the one line here, which is important, which is that after things go through the first level of the court system on the continent, often the judges find for liberty, as happened in Portugal recently with the Azores case I reported on last year. And then what happens? Well, in the, the Benelux or French model, it goes to the Council of State and equivalent of the Privy Council. And they, with government paid lawyers, advise the government uh, on its own behalf that actually they do have the law on their side. And that is able to countermand the lower courts. So a breach of, of uh, the, uh, the division of, of powers, the separation of powers. A little further afield, Business Insider, who seem to brand themselves just as Insider now, are reporting the Citizens Initiative in Switzerland, which is famous for its right of referendum, has been able to get enough signatures on a petition to hold a referendum on whether to take back directly from the government its power to impose lockdowns. But that case is not likely to be heard until June. Um, and then in the name of uh, pandemic, Portuguese state can now control citizens' telecoms access. Is this, are we, uh, yes. are, we are, are, are the Portuguese in Burma now? Well, it seems that they've got limited bandwidth. Uh, you know, notably, a lot of European countries are lagging behind other parts of the world in, in internet speeds. Uh, but this, again, was sent by one of our growing number of viewers on the continent who spot these so that we can pull trends together. Thank you very much to those viewers involved and others who send us material. So what the Portuguese state is ruling is anticipating that it can now, uh, by emergency decree, deny you your bandwidth for certain purposes. Uh, no suggestion that it's for dissident activities at this stage, uh, but they are, interestingly, naming the smooth running of banking operations as equivalent to emergency services in taking priority over the plebs for internet bandwidth. Um, Alex, that's going to be a very nice introduction to a later segment in the news, so I'm going to thank you for that, bringing the banks in. Wonderful. Um, okay, well, look, I'm going to say thank you again to a viewer who uh, sent me this. This is uh, a, a blog post from uh, Calderdale Kirkley's 999 call for the NHS. Uh, they are campaigning for the NHS. Uh, and the headline here is 370,000 London GP patients sold to company owned by US subprime health insurance profiteer. Well, this is quite an interesting article, and I wanted to uh, just take you through the, the names of the key people. I suggest people go and read the article for yourselves, but uh, this is the company that they're talking about here, uh, AT Medics Limited. Um, and uh, well, they have one active person with significant control at the moment, uh, which is AT Medics Holdings LLP. So a limited liability partnership is the one active person with significant control. Uh, but actually, when you look down through the list, you find that uh, just in the last few days, uh, there are a whole bunch of resignations as directors. Um, so clearly something is up here uh, and this blog post uh, has uh, identified what it is. Uh, this is uh, the one director that uh, AT uh, Medic Medical now has, uh, Nicholas John Harding. Uh, AT Medics Limited, as you can see, he's a director of that. But let's just look at his other directorships uh, because he has quite a lot of them. And this is the key one, uh, Operos Health Group UK Limited. We'll come back onto that in a second. Let's just have a look at some of the other directorships that he has. Lots and lots of them. They're all uh, are mostly health related. Uh, at least the, the names imply that, some imply not. But then there's uh, a whole more where he's re resigned as a director. So this guy uh, seems to have directorships coming out of his ears. Uh, but let's go back to the local li uh, the uh, limited liability partnership, which is the uh, the key organization with respect to AT Medics. Uh, and you can see there uh, that it has two main uh, directors. 
uh, MH Services International UK Limited and Operos Health Limited, uh, which we've just mentioned. Um, so who is Operos? Well, Operos, in fact, is owned by this organization, Centene, um, and uh, they are a US-based uh, health insurance company. Uh, they have had some pretty bad press over the years. Uh, Centene was sued, according to the New York Times, for lack of medical coverage. So they were suggesting that they were providing a certain degree of medical coverage when people actually went to get that coverage in the United States. Uh, they found they couldn't get it, so they sued them. Um, so this is the situation. We've been talking about this, we've been warning about this for many, many years, that the uh, National Health Service is being privatized uh, under the surface. You're not seeing it. It's not being overtly privatized. It's being privatized one little bit at a time yeah. as, as uh, clinical commissioning groups, as in this case, are being sold uh, to private companies. Uh, we've got so much uh, NHS service being outsourced to the like of Virgin Healthcare. Uh, and this is right across the board now. Um, and really, the, the, the British government can't deny anymore that this is uh, what they're doing. It has been par part of the, uh, certainly the Conservative Party's desire for many, many years, several decades, in fact. Yeah, privatisation. And it's being done under the smokescreen of chaos, which they've created in the country. That's the creative destruction. Yes. Uh, now, uh, Alex, let's come back to this, uh, to the Cormen Drosten review report. This is just a small segment to give those viewers who want to read in more detail in English what's going on in Germany, uh, which is taking the lead in uh, an extra parliamentary inquiry into all aspects of COVID, where they can find information, mostly on good blogs uh, with good translations. So the Cormen Drosten Review Report is one blog I recommend that people follow. It's, as it says there, curated by an international consortium of life scientists. And the test case or the plaintiff here is Green Mango. Uh, and it's the, the interesting thing is that in a very unprecedented move for Germany, more par more common in common law jurisdictions, um, the uh, respons responsible partners in this responsible persons in this case, Christian Drosten, are personally being held accountable for faulty advice and its consequences in health mm. policy. A couple more examples here, people can freeze the screen and copy that rather difficult URL. It's uh, kept by a gentleman, I think, at a Japanese university. Uh, one page on the Filmich uh, update, which is newsletter 355, and uh, another on the right is the Weimar ruling, uh, which is uh, somewhat similar, which is that a, a landmark judgment at the Weimar District Court, so German federal court system, has found that there was uh, a, a no uh, justification for lockdown. Now, uh, the main interest here is that those who watch or listen to German properly um, are able to follow the Stiftung Corona Ausschuss, which is, as the name suggests, a charitable foundation, so an NGO, as it were, set up to do the Bundestag's job for it and hold a parliamentary inquiry, that's what the word Ausschuss means, parliamentary committee hearings, into COVID. On screen, I have the, the late section of the last but one session held, which was session 36 from memory. And you can find, um, I think, from the channel that simply calls itself Alternative Media, you can find this upload. This is just one version of the, the, the right bit. Rainer Fulmich and Viviana Fischer interviewing Israeli lawyer Tamir Turgal in Corona Committee. 
uh, and the uh, insets there that I've put in are to remind people that especially when they're using a PC but even on a mobile device if you hit the three dots button which on a PC is to, to the lower right of the image you can bring up a usually very good automated and searchable and clickable transcript to hop to the right timestamps uh, and find the words that you're looking for mention of. In this case I did that to look for the words hijack and you might want to read out, Brian or Mike, uh, what it is that uh, this grandson of a Holocaust survivor, Tamir Turgal, an Israeli talking very frankly to this commission of German lawyers, is saying about what he thinks has happened to Israeli society now that they've gone, uh, shall we say, Operation Warp Speed uh, more quickly than any other country in enforcing vaccination take up. Okay, Alex, just to confirm, this is reading down from the uh, the first of the inset texts at zero. That's right, yes. This is Tamir Turgal, the Israeli, talking. Right, well, um, I'm doing my best here. It says, and critical thinking it became, I believe, I feel, and I represent many people in Israel right now that feels that the country in terms of consciousness has been hijacked and, and that people are being full and manoeuvred to believe that we, they are leading the world. People are so happy with the vaccination, uh, their immunity, uh, which they're already talking about the vaccine um yeah and then a little bit of it is a, it, the translation's a little bit strange i would say alex not even not even translation but a fairly good rec voice recognition of him speaking english but at the bottom right. there if people freeze the screen he again says my my country has been hijacked by bad people I think this is a highly significant moment, actually, that Germans and Israeli can, Israelis can talk so frankly about this. In the same session, in fact, from memory, directly after Tamir Turgal spoke, this lady came in, Vanessa Schmidt-Kruger. Unfortunately, no English is available of this yet, but she, as I put from her LinkedIn details on the screen here, this, you know, this is session 37, I beg your pardon, not 36. She, uh, about four hours into that session, uh, starts speaking about her expertise, which as you can see, if you can read the screen, is in uh, molecular uh, cardiovascular research. So, okay, she's into blood and heart vessels, uh, heart and blood vessels more than um, into uh, vaccines as such. But she was called to testify to these lawyers uh, about the degree to which the vaccine manufacturers for COVID can guarantee that their product is free of RNA impurities. And she sets out a case somewhat tentatively and with nervous laughter, although she's taking it very seriously. She realizes the implication of what she's saying. She sets out a case that in particular, BioNTech, which if I am correct, very willing to be corrected if not, is the, uh, shall we say, the subcontractor for Pfizer in Pfizer's version of the COVID vaccine. BioNTech's uh, manufacturing uh, process does not, in her opinion, guarantee molecular purity and could, in a number of patients or patient categories, cause uh, genes to switch off or be switchable off, which causes audible intakes of breath and swearing from the usually very uh, self-contained lawyers on the committee, who in closing ask her, why on earth then are we not uh, retarding the uh, vaccine program until this is sorted out? And she says, well, your guess is as good as mine, more or less. And um, at the end of that Reiner segment, Reiner Filmic says, well, uh, I understand this could be sorted out by summer, but it, from our last testimony from Mr. Turgal, it remains to be seen whether there will be any Israelis left by then. So that's the, the, the level of uh, discovery that's coming in now. Uh, in, in this particular test, testimony does suggest that AstraZeneca has a purer method and a more guaranteed method of filtering out RNA impurities in the vaccine components. 
Yeah. Okay, but we're not saying that uh, reported on British media. Uh, no, uh, of course not. I think we just add that it was ex extra time on Monday. Our, our own David Scott was talking about Israel and how the fact that essentially Orthodox Jews who were uh, uh, certainly not convinced about the safety of vaccines were Orthodox Jews were now being persecuted by the Israeli government. So these, these are amazing times and, and I find it... I find it, um, we're in times where I think the Jewish community in the United Kingdom and in Europe as a whole should be alert to the changes that we're seeing in the style of government, both, both in Europe and indeed back in Israel. Um, okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please uh, head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and uh, join us there. That would be very much appreciated. Uh, and uh, of course, do share uh, the stuff that we push out on the uh, on the various platforms, more platforms on the way. And uh, we just put up an advert for a little um, interview, which I did with former nurse Debbie Evans. Um, we're up well over 20,000 views, no smoke without fire, COVID and the Rio Gulag. You can find that uh, on the UK Column YouTube account if you go here. And uh, we also want to say that, uh, will you help us get up to 100,000 subscribers? We're up to 76,000 and uh, I think this can be achieved and it would be a huge boost for us. Um, but uh, just come back to the, to the interview, what we're trying to do is get some uh, medical knowledge and experience to help bridge the gap between very complex biomedical explanation as to what's happening around vaccines and putting it into more um, digestible language. This is something that we, we need as well. So if you haven't already had a listen to that clip, you can go onto YouTube. And also a big thank you to viewers who picked up on the fact that we pointed out that a GP's uh, business in the Plymouth area was saying that its GPs were only paid uh, £40,000 a year. And um, somebody sent us in some detailed clips here showing how GPs are now into this massive, uh, I'm going to call it gravy train of contracts through into the NHS. Uh, one of the embedded uh, things here says getting patients into care home beds is annually very lucrative too. And there's a link through to, N uh, to uh, NHS England, £60 per patient per care home bed for every CQC registered care home GP. Uh, and that's up to October 2020, thereafter 120 pounds. So the details on screen, we leave it for you to get in and research that for yourself. And this was another one uh, where this is uh, information that's come out of Wales. And here we see the amounts that people are earning from the administration of vaccines. So uh, 12.58 a shot, 25% more than administering the flu jab. And then in the care home setting, the schedule is £30 for the first dose administered Monday, the 4th, 14th of December till Sunday, the 17th of January. So vaccines equal huge amounts of money. And I'll pick up on your point, Mike, when you said that the vaccine companies were saying more or less they were doing all this out of the goodness of their heart, but somebody was making a few billion pounds profit. Yes. Uh, now, um, I've got to say, uh, Vanessa has been waiting very, very patiently. And thank you very much, Vanessa, for this. But uh, uh, 
We're going to start off with this article that appeared uh, in Middle East Monitor. Uh, Russia equipping Syria airbase to receive nuclear bombers. This is a, a pretty major step. Uh, this article is saying that they got the information from the Russian media uh, and uh, that the airbase in Latakia is uh, having its uh, runway upgraded in order to cope with these bombers. But that is a pretty major step for the Russians to take. Yeah, I mean, this was always in the offering, but the timing of this report coming out is, is extraordinary. I mean, shortly after, of course, Biden's inauguration, after Biden's inauguration, we'd seen an uptick in um, US-backed ISIS violence. We'd seen um, Kassad, the uh, Kurdish separatists, um, going further towards trading uh, Syrian resources, not only oil, but wheat and barley, um, withholding um, food uh, services from uh, particularly the civilians in Hasiko, who also, of course, previously had their water cut off by NATO uh, member state Turkey. Um, so this headline came out and, and it seemed to sort of precipitate uh, a series of events that I'll run through very quickly because I know that you, you're short on time. But basically, as you rightly say, taken from the article, um, this is about modernizing Haimami Mare Base, which is in Tartus on the western coast, uh, the Mediterranean coast of uh, Syria. And of course, that Russian base, I have to say, has been there now, I think, for around 60 years. So it's not something that has just um, grown out of the last 10-year war against Syria. Um, now, it's, it, what's important to clarify here, and this again is taken from the article, um, they will rebuild the runway to receive long-range strategic aircraft capable of carrying nuclear weapons, adding that the strategic bombers would be able, if necessary, to strike Syrian terrorists and to support the Russian Mediterranean squadron. Um, so clearly, in my view, whether this is PR or not, Russia is feeling um, the building impetus behind the Biden inauguration to uh, re-empower the terrorist entities on the ground in Syria. And I'll explain. Um, how I've come to that conclusion. It, almost immediately after this headline, the US occupation troops basically relocated very quickly. They didn't stop the inflow of weapons and hardware, military hardware, and even military. Uh, and of course, when I say US, I'm talking about the US coalition, and that includes the UK and France, among others. Um, but they immediately relocated to, closer to the border with Iraq, Turkey, and Syria. Um, where, in fact, is the largest oil well uh, in the northeast of Syria. We then heard uh, almost immediately that there were rumors that the SDF, the, the Kurdish separatists under the control of the U.S. and Israel, predominantly, um, were preparing to renegotiate with Damascus. Of course, the Kurdish separatists do this fairly regularly when they feel that the U.S. is pulling support. They flip and, and decide to talk to Damascus, which is, of course, what they should do um, from the very beginning. Um, Almost immediately, local media and intelligence sources, um, and also carried by Sputnik, Russian media, reported that UK, US, and French intelligence agencies had been discussing with ISIS terrorists in and around Al Tanif, uh, US uh, base in close to the border of Jordan, um, discussing attacks on Russian and Syrian military. 
Um, now, of course, if we go back also to the 27th of January onwards, uh, Iran and Israel have been sparring um, in the media. Uh, Israel, of course, keen to prevent Biden returning to the 2015 nuclear agreement. Iran uh, threatening that if Israel takes preemptive military action, they will target Tel Aviv and Haifa. Then, on the back of all of this, surprise, surprise, on the 15th of February at around, uh, I think it was around one or two in the morning, I heard the first explosion. Uh, Israel uh, carried out um, a pretty heavy aggression against Syrian positions um, to the south and southwest of Damascus, targeting, we believe, the Meze airbase. Um, only material damage they managed to hit. The, the first missile hit, the rest were taken down by um, the Syrian air defense. Um, then, of course, we saw a major rocket attack on a U.S. base in Erbil, northern Iraq, killing one U.S. contractor and injuring five others. Um, Iran has been running military exercises. Those may be normal, but in, in the context, I think it's important to note military exercises on the border with Iraq. And, of course, Iran has influence over some of uh, the strongest forces, the PMU, the Hashid al-Shabi, that have been battling ISIS, I hasten to say, without any help from the United States in Iraq. But the interesting thing for me is recently, and Mike, I see you've got that um, queued up, this video was released. Now, this is the 16th Division. Of course, you know, this is wonderful Syrian PR for their military. Um, salute to them for doing it. Um, but this is a brand new division. This was established last year. It's under the direct command of the president of Syria, President Bashar al-Assad, which is uh, a totally new development. It has been being developed. It is suddenly producing these, these PR snips um, for social media. Now, to me, this means that they are mobilized. Um, and what, of course, we've seen on the back of the announcement of the uh, increase of capacity in the Haimamim Russian base in Tartus, we've also seen an increase in the attacks by terrorists in southern Idlib. 35 to date were recorded um, by the Russian Reconciliation Center um, against Latakia and against southern Idlib. So I think what we're seeing now is a mobilization of armed forces to go deeper into Idlib. And I've pretty much had that theory confirmed by the fact that they've just opened three new humanitarian corridors from, again, deeper inside uh, liberated Idlib territory. So I think now what we're going to see is a heavy push into Idlib to liberate further territory and also to prevent Turkey, NATO member state, of course, annexing Syrian territory in the northwest. They've basically been building power grids and supplying electricity from Turkish um, grids and, of course, building effectively breeze block shanty towns in territory that they have effectively annexed with their um, military resources. And, of course, um, with the aid of the Al-Qaeda uh, HTS and their affiliates who control the majority of northwest Syria or rather of Idlib. Um, so this is all quite strategic. And the question then mm. is, uh, if, if the United States has pushed, has, has pulled back to the, to the border, is this to re, uh, sort of get reorganized for some, for some future action? Or have they really been uh, concerned about or given concern over this, uh, this uh, announcement by the Russians? 
Well, I think you've seen a change, and I don't know what Alex thinks of this, but I think you've seen a definite change in the Russian uh, way of speaking recently. They've become a lot more bellicose. If you look at uh, Lavrov's speech, which was, a, or, or rather his press conference um, with the visiting uh, foreign minister from Jordan, he makes quite an extraordinary statement. I can't remember the exact uh, terminology he uses, but he warns against um, assuming that the Russians are going to do nothing because they are polite, because they are civilized people. And he states very clearly at the end of it, you know, we are a threat. I mean, he puts it in, you know, in, in very diplomatic terms. But what he's basically saying is, don't take us for fools. We're here and we're ready to stand our ground. And I think you're seeing a mirroring of that language across much of the Russian diplomatic speech at the moment. And it's a very important pointer to take. Um, Alex, uh, have you got any thoughts on that? Yes, Vanessa is, I think, absolutely right there that there has been a trend of Lavrov and Putin and other Russian ministers in the last couple of months, mainly in economic or COVID settings, but also in some di diplomatic and military ones, saying we've had enough. Really, we've had enough. Most particularly, what springs to mind is the European Union's, uh, well, effectively foreign minister, because the EU behaves as though it were a state, uh, Josep Borrell, who went to Moscow and had an awful time, came back with his tail behind between his legs and blogged about it and how awful the Russians were. But he was making a point that the press conference was what he would call hostile. In other words, the, you know, there was no fawning over him anymore. And in that particular context, Lavrov simply said, uh, the best write-up, by the way, is in, uh, at least it's been mirrored to thesaker.is. Um, the, the, the summary there was, we don't actually need the European Union. And we know we don't because German business, which is the economic might behind the European Union, wants to deal with us one-to-one. -one. Uh, particularly over Nord Stream. So that's a different end of the Russian-European relationship uh, geographically and in terms of area uh, of the economy than what Vanessa is talking about. But there does seem to have been a coordinated decision in the Kremlin round about New Year to, rep to, to take, a, shall we say, one or two notches off the politesse. Yes, OK. Um, I just wanted to add a general comment, say that we're reporting this because we believe that this is an extremely important development in Syria and, of course, wider impact on the Middle East not being reported in uh, other mainstream media in UK. Um, OK, so thank you. Thank you very much for that, Vanessa. Uh, we got to... We, Alex, you were going to uh, um, cover some more US news which would have been related to that but I think we'll keep that for extra time if we could because I'd actually like to move on just briefly to what Lord Sumption was uh, was posting in the Telegraph yesterday. Uh, the headline is liberal democracy will be the biggest casualty of this pandemic um, and uh, well let's just have a look at some of the uh, some of the comments that he was making. Uh, he said the biggest casualty of the lockdown will not be the closed pubs, restaurants and shops. Uh, and the crippled airlines, the biggest casual, casualty of all will be liberal democracy. He said, what makes us a free society is that although the state has vast powers, there are conventional limits on what it can do with them. The limits are, sorry, the limits are uh, conventional because they do not depend on our laws, but on our attitudes. Uh, there are islands of human life, which are our own, a personal space into which the state should not intrude without some altogether exceptional justification. Now, 
just wanted to get your thoughts on that little bit first of all. But what I noticed from the uh, from the, the Telegraph article was that they sub subheadline this with the idea uh, once again of an unwritten constitution. Um, now I would suggest that the subheadline and the headline were not written by assumption, but nonetheless, he, he does he does suggest here that. Uh, uh, you know that a state requires vast powers in order to, to provide people with the safety that they so desire, and I'm a little uh, little dubious of that position. It's not the historical position of any of the judiciaries in the British Isles. Actually, David Scott was reporting about a year ago that similar things were happening. I think a speech by the Lord President, so the, t the head of the judiciary in Scotland, was saying some of the things a little more nakedly that uh, we have, uh, you know, almost a Nancy Pelosi line. We have inordinate power. We are so close to the power centre; it's unbelievable. So we have to, you know, tread softly as we carry this big stick. That was the kind of language. No, um, the judiciary, and in fact, the Continental News I showed earlier is rather better at this, this stage of decay at showing it. The judiciary is there to say, government, you don't have the power to do that. To Lord Assumption's credit, he does what Continental judges do not. And he says, what is the effect on real people of all this philosophical talk about the public good? Uh, notably, it's just government arguments on the continent and increasingly, sadly, in the common law countries. But Lord Sumption at least takes the proper common law position there, which is that the state is actually denying real people real rights right now with its claims of policy requirements. Uh, yes. So uh, so that, as he says, uh, there are conventional limits on what the, uh, the state can do with its powers. He went on to say liberal democracy breaks down when frightened majorities demand mass coercion of their fellow citizens and call for our personal spaces to be invaded. Uh, he said these demands are invariably based uh, on what people can uh, conceive to be the public good. They all assert that despotism is in the public interest. Uh, he said uh, a threshold has now been crossed. A big poo has gone. Other governments will say that the only question that matters is whether it works and whether it, they can get away with it. So he's really highlighting the fact that the British government is setting a precedent here that others may wish to follow. Uh, and he's saying, I do not doubt that there are extreme situations in, our, in which our oppressive controls, in which oppressive controls over our daily lives will be necessary and justified. Don't think I agree with that. But anyway, he goes on to say such as smallpox or Ebola, where he's talking about much higher uh, mortality rates uh, than COVID. Uh, and he says the Prime Minister claims to believe in liberty and to find the current measures distasteful. I'm afraid that I do not believe him. Um, so overall, you know, there were a few uh, statements that he made in this that, that I found a bit questionable, but the overall thrust of the article I thought was, was very good. Uh, and again, uh, he's speaking out in public to make these points, um, bearing in mind that uh, some of the things that he has said recently have resulted in uh, some misrepresentation and, and uh, uh, personal attack. Uh, he is at least uh, sticking his head above the parapet and, uh, and taking a position. Yes, uh, the convention he's talking about, Mike, and we will get into this more, uh, I think, as we go through our Dissident's Guide to the Constitution podcast series, which has definitely not gone away for those of you impatient for the next episode, but we're busy with other things, as you can see. Uh, Lord Sumption and higher ranks of the judiciary understand something here. Since the modern British state came about, roughly the late 18th century, a period that Lord Sumption knows a lot about and many people have written about, 
the Crown's concession was, well, all right, I'm not going to just autocratically appoint ministers at my whim and, and allow them to wield the Crown in my name from now on. I'm also going, I'm going to draw them from a limited pool of represented elect, uh, elected representatives of the people. So they're going to be members of Parliament, not the original design, and a very bad flaw, according to some good good minds on this. But at least it gave the, the appearance that everything that was done by the government was done because the government, the people had chosen it to be the government. That's the root of the convention that Lord Sumption is talking about, that a statute would, where necessary, or a statutory instrument, mirror something that otherwise would have done, been done more nakedly through the Crown's prerogative channels, through the Privy Council. And uh, that's what's coming unstuck now in the continental versions because they have later and when worse constitutions but a little more detail sometimes they do sometimes say for example in the case of belgium with the the, the um, curfew there well you can use a, a a royal decree to appoint a mayor but you can't as the as the most recent constitutional ruling found you can't use a royal decree basically ministerial prerogative outside parliament uh, in order to impose a curfew so that that's the stage at which the battle is now uh, shall we say, stripping away the illusion that governments are in Parliament. They are in fact separate things. Parliament's supposed to be there to hold the government to account. And it probably would have been better if we hadn't actually had this convention in the first place and had gone the US route of having ministers or state secretaries of state, as they're called there, being visibly separate from Parliament so that we understand that they're not us. Yes. The only thing I'd just like to add is that I think many, the judge there is obviously, I'm going to call him a learned man, I think that'd be the appropriate thing. Um, but uh, they seem to have difficulty grasping that you can have a malevolence in a government. And I rather read his views and I'm thinking, yes, this man thinks it's all a little bit of a cock up and we need a little bit of tweaking of the law and it's going to come back into line. I personally think this is a very naive approach because what we've got is a malevolent conspiracy. But maybe I'm being unkind on him. We'll see. Uh, let's listen to the reality of uh, the state of the law in UK. And uh, a few days ago, we had a uh, retired uh, police detective who was working with Anthony Stansfeld, the police and crime commissioner for Thames Valley. And that was a team looking into high level and extremely large banking fraud. We're delighted to be able to give some more information from uh, David Leighty. Let's just listen to this very brief clip uh, where he's talking about uh, banking fraud. I have in front of me Operation Meadow, as leaked by a senior police officer in the Thames Valley um, Police, which um, it was 11 cases of serious criminality that the police whitewashed in order to protect the bank. The matter is now very politically sensitive, and um, it is now in the hands or will be in the hands of Priti Patel personally because every regulator up to her level has refused to deal with it. Uh, the banks, although they'll deny it, have ha had total control of the Turnbull report into bank um, activity and fraud and the Dobbs report by Dame Linda Dobbs. Um, the banks had total control of that. This is one controlled by uh, uh, independent investigators that the banks have had no input in. And I can tell you, I have now got an Operation Meadow file in front of me comprising 50 cases of extremely serious fraud, cover-up and criminality. 
So uh, that's really focusing on the truth of the state of the law in UK and the sums of money were into billions of pounds of money in this fraud. Um, but of course, was it Portugal, Portugal Alex, uh, suggesting that we needed to protect uh, bandwidth over the internet in order to protect the smooth trading of the international banks? It was indeed, Brian, and this actually segues pretty closely into at least one of the items I'm going to announce next. I'm not sure it's the very next slide, but it, one of the ones that we're about to go into is about the European Court of Human Rights. To remind people, this is not the EU, but the older and separate body in Strasbourg, saying for the second time ever to the British government, you're actually failing to guarantee uh, people's rights not to be pressed into slavery. It's, mar it's largely foreign immigrants exploiting foreign immigrants, to be sure. But the same, the same point is made there that when it gets to the ECHR, even a man who's often derided as being a Soros puppet, the George Grozef, the Judge Grozef, he actually has the gumption to say, no, clearly uh, the British police and prosecuting authorities are not interested in getting people out of known situations of slavery. So yeah. it is very similar, actually. Alex, thank you very much for that. Well, I think that brings us to the yeah. end of uh, today's news. Uh, one of our most important news editions, I think. So if you can help us share it, that would be really wonderful. Um, what do we expect of our audience? Well, we expect you to try and help us get the word out there, research and check and double check what we're saying to make sure you know that what we're saying is accurate. And if you're happy with that information, push it out. We'd be very grateful for some support to get those YouTube viewing numbers up. And uh, we're going to say thank you again to people who've gone over and above a subscription uh, recently. It's, uh, it's just wonderful. So we'll leave it there. Troubled times. Talk to people. Spread the word. Stand up to be counted. And uh, don't be uh, in the fear bracket as a result of the propaganda that the British government is pumping into the United Kingdom. We'll leave it there. Bye-bye.